You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. We've talked. I've talked. You guys haven't talked. This is the top of the show. You don't get to talk. I've talked at the top of the show uh, and during the show about Elliot Spitzer, the former disgraced – you always have to qualify Elliot Spitzer with disgrace – the disgraced former governor of New York State who got mixed up in a prostitution scandal. Hypocrisy was involved when he was state attorney general. He uh, went after prostitution rings and busted people and then he was patronizing high-priced escorts himself and that came out and he had to resign uh, about a year into his governorship. And he's running for New York City Comptroller now. This is part of his whole redemption thing. He had a show on CNN for a while. He had a show on Current for a while. He writes for a lot of different websites and blogs and newspapers. Elliot Spitzer has been redeemed. And of course, my buddy Anthony Weiner running for governor of New York. And I've talked about that a lot. I've talked about the fact that we don't want to set a standard that one dirty sext gets out there in the world, one or a couple or a few uh, stupid, ill-advised, dirty, dirty chats online forever disqualifies you from public life and you have to live in shame and never live your apartment ever again. Because if we set that as the standard, we are ruining the lives of all of our children because all of our children are sexing like mad. And we just don't want that to be the standard. Any more than we want the standard to be if you smoke pot once and it comes out and you get caught, you're ruined and you cannot – have any sort of public life and you can't be elected to any public offices and you can't be trusted with children because everybody smoked pot and everybody now carries around a porn production studio in their pocket known as a phone and everybody communicates with their friends and lovers and tricks and acquaintances and people they want to fuck uh, via text and that sometimes includes dirty, dirty pictures. So it's heartening to see how well Anthony Weiner is doing in the race in New York, although I'm not taking a position. I'm not endorsing Anthony Weiner. Um, Christine Quinn is also running for mayor of New York. Uh, and she is, of course, a lesbian and I am uh, obligated under the terms of the International Homosexual Conspiracy to not harm, if not, of course, help her race for the mayor's mansion in New York, however you say that. Uh, so I'm not taking a position but I am heartened by how well Wiener is doing in New York and that he's facing this slut-shaming down. And yes, men can be slut-shamed and indeed Wiener was. But Spitzer, Spitzer broke the law. Just like David Vitter, senator from Louisiana, he broke the law too. He was patronizing prostitutes. He was making calls to set up dates with escorts from Congress, from the floor of Congress when he was a representative and that all came out when he was a senator and he was the family values guy, right-wing conservative family values, anti-gay because those gay people, they're attacking marriage, undermining the traditional family unit like that traditional family unit that David Vitter trotted out in his campaign ads when he was running for Senate. And the family values conservative voters in Louisiana, southern state, reliably Republican red state, reelected the bastard, sent him back to the Senate. So he was redeemed post his prostitution scandal. And Spitzer is in the third or fourth act of his redemption. He's already been redeemed by CNN and by Current and by Slate and by MSNBC and everybody else. And now he is asking for the voters to redeem him by returning him to public office. And it looks like he could win that race. Which would be, I think, good because I don't think sex work should be illegal. 
I think, as I've said before, that there should be a system set up to so that people can be certain that the sex workers they're patronizing aren't being exploited or abused or trafficked and also a system set up so the sex workers can be sure that the clients they're seeing are not violent, dangerous assholes, that there needs to be a sex worker registry and a John registry that's online and unstigmatized and we can bring this – into the daylight and make sex work safer for everyone involved, particularly for the women who are the majority of the people out there doing sex work. Uh, I've been thinking about all this again today because there's a terrific and very pointed piece in New York Magazine by Melissa Petro. Melissa was a New York City school teacher, a teaching fellow, a really good one. She had a master's degree in education and she taught art and creative writing at a quote, struggling elementary school in the South Bronx where we need people with master's degrees and a passion for teaching in the South Bronx, in every public school. But she wrote a piece for Huffington Post uh, a few years ago about having done some escorting, about having been a sex worker for four or five months, this brief period of time. And she wrote about it and was promptly fired. She was sent to the rubber room in New York, as it's called, where the New York City school system sends teachers they want to get rid of. Uh, she was shamed publicly by Mayor Michael Bloomberg and really driven out uh, of uh, of her career because of this, because she did sex work. And she has this terrific piece in New York Magazine called We Pardon Spitzer But Still Judge Former Sex Workers Like Me. Yes, it's true, Petro writes, I brought this scandal upon myself but I could have never anticipated the fallout or that my candor would make me a victim in another way. Like Spitzer, I was put on a blast on the cover of the New York Post, then ridiculed in the national press, shamed by the city, including Michael Bloomberg himself. Ultimately, I was forced to resign from a career I loved. After I was fired, I couldn't pay my rent. Even now, freelance writing and the seminars I teach barely pay the bills. Because of the negative publicity, I lost the part-time jobs that had subsidized my teaching salary and it would only get worse for me. Her piece goes on. You should read the whole thing. Go to nymag.com and look up Melissa Petro. We pardon Spitzer, but we still judge former sex workers like me. Please read the whole thing and marvel at the vicious, sexist double standard that Melissa Petro unpacks in one short and pointed essay. You know, whenever decent people talk about sex workers and their clients, when people who oppose decriminalizing sex work talk about sex work, Female sex workers are always portrayed as victims in need of rescue and male clients are always portrayed as criminals in need of punishment. But it is always the male clients at the center of prostitution scandals, big public ones, guys like Spitzer and Senator David Vitter who are welcomed back into public life and given second chances. Spitzer gets that show. Spitzer gets to run for comptroller. Vitter gets reelected by family values voters in Louisiana. But the female sex workers – who were outed or came out in the wake of scandals like Spitzer's and Vitter's are not given any second chances. They're ostracized. They're condemned. Vitter keeps his job. Spitzer gets new jobs. And the escorts they quote-unquote victimized are persecuted and punished for the rest of their lives. Such bullshit. We have to stop pretending that criminalizing and stigmatizing sex work is about protecting women if this is the way it's going to work. Because it's about punishing women if this is the way it works. The proof is on the front page of the New York Times right now. Spitzer is winning that race. And Melissa Petro and those escorts that Spitzer patronized, they are losing. It's some sexist fucking bullshit. Go read Melissa Petro's piece, newyorkmag.com. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. 
I'm in a really secure relationship, gay man, have a, a gay partner for about five or six years. And, you know, we've obviously made the transition to having sex without condoms. But I guess I was just kind of curious, for general guidelines on how long a couple should be together before they decide to go without condoms, or if ever. And that was just basically my question. Uh, at what point in a monogamous relationship do you come to when when you decide to go without condoms? For, for my partner and I, it was about a year. But I guess I'm curious what the recommendations are or how that should have happened, if we did it right, if we did it wrong. Obviously, it's right for us, but... I don't know. Just, uh, just I'm curious about some guidelines about condoms. A gay couple that decides to go without condoms in the context of that relationship—that's called negotiated safety. And the way it's supposed to work, in theory, is a couple is together. They're using condoms. Uh, they're being safe. Maybe they're not having penetrative sex even. Uh, and they decide that they know and like and trust each other well enough that they want to take this next step. They want to have condom-free sex with each other, unprotected butt sex. And so uh, at that, that, that point in the relationship, presumably, theoretically, they really have both established that they can trust each other. This is genuinely – a monogamous relationship or if not monogamous, then they will only be having this unprotected sex with each other and sex with others outside the relationship will be strictly safe or even non-penetrative. And so the theory around negotiated safety is like this. You go and get tested. You get tested together. You determine that you're both HIV negative. You wait three months. You test again and you keep using condoms during the three-month wait. Uh, you get tested again to make sure that that HIV test was accurate and that you hadn't been infected so recently that the HIV test you took three months ago didn't catch it. You get tested again. If you're both still negative, then you throw the condoms away and you have unprotected sex with each other. You are called fluid bonded. Uh, that's a term of art. And this is where it gets tricky for a lot of people. If you cheat or if your partner cheats, this is, this is where a lot of guys have a problem. You have to hammer out an agreement that allows for cheating that isn't going to destroy the relationship. Uh, but basically what you don't want to have – you don't want to create a circumstance where you guys are fluid bonded. You're not using condoms with each other. One or the other of you has an unsafe experience outside the relationship. There's an exposure, potential exposure to HIV or some other sexually transmitted infection and that person who cheated knows – if they go home and confess, oh, I cheated, that they'll be dumped. If they think they're going to be dumped, they're not going to confess. They're just going to cross their fingers, hope for the best and keep having unprotected sex with their boyfriend. And then if they did get infected, they're going to pass that infection along. So what you have to do is you have to look at each other and say, if you cheat, I will not break up with you if you disclose immediately so that we can resume using condoms, protect each other, and then we'll repeat that whole cycle over again. Once we work through the trust issues that were violated or the reasons that you cheated, we will test, wait three months, test again, and then we can get rid of the condoms again. You got to disclose. And someone isn't going to disclose an infidelity, a cheat, a risk, uh, you, know, uh, you know, having their zero status compromised if they know that that's going to lead to a breakup. Someone's unlikely to disclose it. You don't want to create a disincentive to disclose in that circumstance because too much is at stake. That's how it's supposed to work. Sounds really complicated, right? That's how it's supposed to work. Uh, it's pretty elaborate, negotiated safety, that system. The trouble for a lot of gay guys, uh, particularly young gay guys, is that not using condoms has become this marker of a bond, that it's a love, it's a real relationship. And so a lot of young gay guys are in a hurry to throw those condoms away because it's a way of showing that person that you do not yet know well because you haven't really been together that long that you love and trust them. Sometimes young people, insecure, want to really 
feel the love and so they skip stages. They skip steps. They don't test, wait three months, test again, then do it after being together six months or a year or longer. They test once maybe or they don't test at all. They just both say, yeah, I was clean last time I got tested. Please don't put it that way, people. People who are HIV positive are not dirty and they get upset when people who are negative describe themselves as clean. I was just putting it in the language of the douchebags there. Uh, and so they hurry it. They hurry the process along, which is why the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that the majority of new HIV infections among gay men occur within committed relationships. A lot of the relationships in these studies the CDC has conducted define committed very broadly, that these are people who have been together a month, two months, three months, six months, and they consider their relationship committed and they think that not using condoms is evidence of that commitment. So that's the problem with negotiated safety. It sounds like you and your partner are doing it kind of sort of right. You were together for a year. You tested. You threw the condoms away and it sounds like all things are working well for you. Terry and I are in the same boat. We don't use condoms with each other and we haven't for – 16 years, <laughs> just add, doing the math there, 16 years and we're both still negative and it's all worked out really well. We did it though kind of sort of the right way. We do have an agreement that if something happens outside that there will be disclosure without either of us ending the relationship. We haven't had to face that circumstance down, thank God, but we have sworn on a stack of Bibles that if something happens, it will be disclosed and we will go back to condoms and we will wait. We will repeat that cycle. You and your boyfriend caller, if you haven't had that conversation, if you haven't hammered out that agreement, that's the missing piece. That's what you need to do. It's not in the study. I don't have the data to back this up but I have a lot of anecdotal data from friends who are positive, who were infected in the context of a relationship that they believed was monogamous. That wasn't. There was cheating. Uh, maybe there's a one-off cheat or an ongoing cheat and their partner for fear of being dumped didn't tell them and – Along came HIV into that circumstance and spread from the third party to one half of the couple to the other half of the couple. And that wasn't disclosed. That outside contact wasn't disclosed for fear of being dumped and for fear of being dumped then one person infected the other. So you need to eliminate that fear of being dumped to protect you and, for, and to protect your husband or your boyfriend in this relationship. So if you haven't had that agreement yet, do it now. Hey, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old guy uh, living on the East Coast, and I'm in a long-term relationship with a really great GGG girl. Uh, pretty early on in a relationship, uh, we let each other know our kinks, and I let her know that I'm really into anal play, um, on the receiving end. And she was great about it. And recently, we've been trying it, and it's not so great. Um, this is something I've been doing on my own solo for a long time, and that's kind of how I knew I loved it. But now that I'm doing it with her, it just, I don't know, isn't the same. It kind of feels not painful, but just, I don't know, maybe rushed, but we're not trying to rush it. We've watched educational videos together. We've talked about it. We've tried to be open and, you know, try to communicate, but I just feel like something's missing. I guess I feel like when I'm doing it solo, I'm just in control and I know exactly what I want, but obviously that can't happen. You know, and she's only getting in. So any tips would be great. Thanks. So when you do this alone with your own little collection of toys, butt toys, 
what kind of toys are you using? Uh, is it the same toy that your girlfriend is using strapped on or are they different? Well, no, it, it, there's no strap on. Um, same toys, um, but no strap on or, or fingers. Oh, okay. So we're talking about what then? She's not pegging you. She's just using your butt toys on you? Yeah. Or fingers. You, you mentioned fingers? Yeah, her finger, she's used her fingers and the like uh, the dildos and butt plugs and stuff. Uh-huh. And so her putting the butt plug in is a, different for you in what way than you putting the butt plug in? Like it's just not comfortable. Like I'm, I guess like I'm not relaxed or something. Uh-huh. It kind of feels a little bit like it burns or something. Um, you know, we try to warm up and stuff, but this really isn't the same. So have you tried putting the butt plug in in front of her? Um, I don't think I have. No. That would be my first bit of homework for you guys. Because if it's some hang-up about her doing the placement, her shoving the dildo or butt plug up your butt, uh, that causes you to go be, be tense, that mm-hmm. it might be a good transition step for you to actually use the toys on yourself with her there, with her doing something else or with you doing something else to her uh, or her just watching to see if there's that same tension. Because it may not be that she's – doing anything wrong or there's something about the toy in her hand that, you know, turns it into something that's burning you. It's just that you, you're not totally relaxed yet with the idea of giving up this control of handing this thing that you've done to yourself over to somebody else to do. And that can be scary. You know, when you've pleasured yourself with butt toys, anal penetration requires a little bit more time, breathing, uh, relaxation than any other kind of penetration, truly. Uh, and, and you have a you have a perfect feedback loop from your ass to your brain. You know exactly what's going on. You know exactly how ready you are. You know exactly when to push. I, I feel like you're right. Like that's what's missing. And, and she doesn't. So she doesn't know. She doesn't have that perfect feedback loop with your brain. And so she has to learn how to read those signals that you're giving her. So you need to take it really slow and you need to be communicating as she's trying to penetrate you. Are you communicating? Are you saying anything to her while she's trying to do this? You're just trying to tough it out. No, we uh, definitely communicate. I'm definitely talking about it, um, but I'm still probably going a bit too fast. Yeah, slow way the fuck down. When you're sometimes people who are really good with anal penetration solo will become self conscious about the glacial pace they need to achieve anal penetration when they're with the partner, and they will try to go too fast or allow their partner to go too fast, and it winds up hurting or burning. Mm-hmm. And so you need yeah. to let this take as much time. As it's going to take. With her, has, have you tried to go faster than you would go alone? Uh, definitely. Yeah, without a doubt. Oh, well, that's absolutely positively 100% what you're doing wrong. <laughs> that you're, yeah. you're, just, you're going too fast. And for someone who's already pretty experienced, it sounds, with anal self-pleasure, that's an amateur mistake you shouldn't be making. Yeah, I'm just you know, not used to it, not having the whole feedback, feedback loop. And, and there's nothing about – you know what? I would uh, – the other – the. The next baby step, the next transition step for you, do it to yourself in front of her. Then do it to yourself in front of her with one toy and then pull that toy out of yourself and let her do the next one so that you're already good to go. You're already relaxed. You're already comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I bet that second toy in her hand is going to be a lot easier to get in you. I know for a fact it's going to be easier to get in you than the first toy was. Okay. Yeah, that sounds all right. And, and, and for someone who does the penetrating, and everybody who gets penetrated anally is going to be a little different. Some people need a little time, a lot of time, a little lube, a lot of lube, um, a lot of anal foreplay, not very much anal foreplay. Everybody's different. 
But her being able to see your physical cues, her being able to watch you do it is really going to help her learn how to do it for you. Mm-hmm. So let her watch, then do it to yourself while she watches and then let her have a go and you will gradually transition to a point where she can be in charge the whole time. And a whole lot about you know anal penetration, particularly when it's pegging or a woman is doing it to a man and it's sort of inverting all these gender stereotypes in the traditional roles um, – all that is really hot but all of that can inflame certain insecurities that you thought maybe weren't there anymore, right? Because you are letting up control, right. not just control that you're being penetrated but letting up control of sex roles that are really firmly ingrained in people, really carved a deep groove into people. So there's two mm-hmm. things you're overcoming now that you're allowing her to do this for and with you, not just – you know, those sphincter muscles that are clenched pretty tight most of the time that you have to learn how to relax and control, but also those gender roles that you have to learn how to relax about and let go of. So give yourself a little mm-hmm. more time, take it slow, let her watch, let her try, and then let her try it all on her own. All right, I can try that. Like you said, it's really just letting go and <laughs> giving some control, keeping it slow. And uh, use a lot of lube and give us a call back in a month or two and let us know how it went, how it went in. All right. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give that a try. Thanks a lot. Sure thing. Bye. Hi, Dan. I am a 19-year-old college student in the Midwest dating a 40-something guy. And I have a problem. We have a great relationship, but he is so jealous of my gay friends. Um, I have, like, three gay guy friends, and he refuses to believe that they don't want to have sex with me. So how do I convince my boyfriend that my gay gay friends don't want to go down on me? You have a relationship. You do not have a great relationship. You have right now a relationship with someone who is – we talk about irrational jealousy on the show a lot. But you have a relationship with somebody who's got extra super-duper irrational jealousy. His fear that your gay friends want to fuck you, his inability to accept gay for uh, an answer, for a don't-want-to-fuck-me answer, my gay friends don't want to fuck me, isn't something that you can really help him overcome because it's really not about your gay friends. It's really not about convincing him that your gay friends are gay. It's really about him having a problem around you, a, a desire to control you and to – you know, someone who is a, an irrational, controlling shitbag of a lousy relationship partner, which I believe this man is, this obsession of his has – revealed him to be not a great partner and worse is in store the longer you date this guy, the longer you hang out. This is about him trying to dominate and control you by throwing out bullshit and saying you must dump your friends. This is red flag, red flag, waving red flag, Mayday Parade in China, red flag. Someone who tries to isolate you from your friends, your support network, your family, that's an abuser move and that he is trying to isolate you from your gay friends who pose no threat to him whatsoever, him drawing an arbitrary fucking line in the sand like that and saying you are not allowed to hang out with these guys ultimately isn't about his fear that they're going to go down on you. Ultimately, it is about his desire to control you which requires isolating you from your friends who in this case happen to be gay. And he's presenting you with something that looks like it could be rational. Like they're dudes and he's a dude and I sleep with dudes. And so maybe he, he worries that, that I want to sleep with them or they want to sleep with me. So of course he's a little threatened and insecure about my giver. Stop telling yourself that. He's being a dick bag and it's only going to get worse. This shit, once it starts and you acquiesce to it at all, 
only gets worse. That you're calling me and not breaking up with him is one step down the road to it getting worse. That you're trying to deal with this as a rational person when what's coming out of his mouth is deeply irrational, that's what he's trying to exploit. And you need to recognize this for what it is, abusive, irrational, controlling behavior. And instead of calling me and saying, how do I convince my boyfriend who's 40-something and I'm 19 that my gay friends don't really want to fuck me, my poor boyfriend who just feels a little insecure, if I could just find a way to reassure him, <laughs> no, you will not find a way to reassure this dickbag. He does not want to be reassured. He will never be mollified until he has isolated you from your friends, until he, you wind up to mollify him, cutting them out of your life. That's what he's after. And it's not because they're men and it's not because they're gay and it's not because he thinks they're going to go down on you. He just wants you to have no support system, no network of friends that you can rely on when he ups the ante. And the next irrational controlling shit comes from his mouth. You have no one to turn to and say, what do you think of this? What should I do about this? My boyfriend is saying this or doing that. Help. He doesn't want you to have that kind of support system. He doesn't want you to have that kind of help. That's the abuser move that's going on. It's the first move in the abuser game. Get the fuck out. You do not have a great relationship. You are in what felt like a great relationship with someone who is now revealing himself to be a controlling, possibly emotionally, possibly physically abusive douchebag. Before I say this next thing, I'm going to qualify it with there are people out there in relationships that are loving and terrific and wonderful where there is a big age gap, where there is 20, 30 years age difference. Not all of those relationships are abusive. But there are also people who are older who date people who are younger specifically to exploit their naivete and inexperience. If you are the fifth or sixth in a series of teenage girlfriends of this guy in his 40s, you need to ask yourself, what do women closer to his own age have that I don't? What do women of legal drinking age have that I don't and the other six girlfriends he's had in a row? didn't. Judgment, sense, experience, maybe that's what you lack. Maybe that's part of what attracted him. I'm not saying everybody who's in their 30s or 40s who dates somebody in their early 20s, even late teens, is necessarily an abuser. But in the context of that other move, this irrational bullshit about your gay friends, the fact that you're 19 and he's in his 40s is another bad sign. Two strikes. I think in this case, two strikes, dude's out. You can ignore my advice and wait for that third strike but God, I hope when that third strike comes, it's out. You declare him out and over and get him the fuck out of your life. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old straight male. I am dating a woman and we have pretty awesome what I like to call vanilla plus sex. Uh, sometimes as much as six, seven times a day but probably more on the tune of eight to ten times a week. Uh, overall, uh, it's been really great, but I have had an increasingly difficult time orgasming. I just cannot seem to do it. We can have sex for an hour and I just will not get there. If we have sex 10 times a week, I maybe come twice if I'm lucky. And at first this wasn't that big a deal, um, but it's starting to become a problem because she just feels like there's nothing we can do or she can do to get me off. And I feel like this maybe is exacerbating the problem as a result. I should also probably mention that I'm circumcised just because it seems like everywhere I look, 
people basically say if you're circumcised, like you're screwed. Um, I hope that's not the case. It doesn't seem like it, but you know, figure it should be worth mentioning. Anyway, uh, if you have any advice or is there anything I could do to help this out, I would love to hear what you have to say. I don't remember who said this, but uh, I quoted this person in one of my books and skipping towards Gamora, the chapter about swinging. I could go look it up, but I'm fucking lazy. If you're curious to find out who said this, you go fucking look it up. Um, but the, the, the sex researcher examining swinging culture and how it actually facilitates female promiscuity pointed out that women are basically fundamentally biologically insatiable. The more orgasms a woman has, the more orgasms that woman can have. She can go and go and go and go and go. Guys, on the other hand, men, we are satiable. We can be sated. We can come too much. You say you are having sex sometimes six, seven times a day, at the minimum 10 times a week. Yeah, you're not coming every time anymore because you can't, because there are limitations built into your junk biologically, physiologically, genetically. You're just done. Your balls are drained. Your dick is exhausted and has been worn to a stub. You want to come more often when you're fucking? Fuck less often. She likes to have sex all the time. She wants to get off all the time. Not only is she theoretically insatiable, she is actually insatiable. Eat her fucking pussy. Use toys. Get down on your knees and go to work on her twat. Get her off. Or encourage her to regard your dick and your orgasms as something that you hold in reserve so that you do come two or three times a week, maybe, uh, maybe a little more. And other times you're just getting hard and allowing her, helping her, or using your dick as a sex toy on her because she is not just a as high or higher a sex drive than you do, but a higher sexual capacity for orgasm than you do, which is not about her failing to turn you on. It's about she's a female and she is built that way and you're a male and you are built a little differently. And this has nothing to do with being circumcised. I'm circumcised. Most of the guys I've ever been with were circumcised and their dicks worked fine in almost all cases. There are some people out there with botched circumcisions uh, or uh, erectile dysfunction uh, or, or other intimacy issues that they blame on circumcision. In some cases, probably rightfully so, they blame on their circumcisions. But most people do not experience erectile dysfunction as uh, or inability to climax as a direct result of having been circumcised. So stop looking at it that way. Uh, I would encourage you <laughs> to get some bed rest. Give your dick a little break and see if it doesn't bounce back. It's probably a combination of exhaustion, overuse, and performance anxiety all coming together to create a perfect storm of inability to climax. You need to deprioritize your orgasms. She needs to deprioritize your orgasms. You need to destigmatize those moments when you guys got together, you got hard, you fucked and fucked and fucked, she got off, and then it doesn't matter if you get off at that moment. Think of all the women out there who are having vaginal intercourse, penetrative sex without climaxing, who are in it for the pleasure and the intimacy and it's not stigmatized when they don't get off. And there are a lot of women out there who don't enjoy feeling pressure to get off every time because they don't want to have to fake an orgasm as if it's some sort of referendum on their male partner's prowess. And here we are with the opposite happening where your girlfriend who likes a lot of sex – is now treating your dick as it's somehow failing her because it's a referendum on whether she turns you on or not. You need to step back from that. She needs to step back from that. 
or you're going to permanently fuck up your sexual relationship and your intimacy and the relationship will fall apart as a result. Good luck. Hi, Jan Savage. I'm calling because I'm having a debate with my friends over a guy that I recently hooked up with. He was nice enough. It was our first date and then we hooked up and his cock was so foul, smelled awful, tasted awful that I almost gagged. But I'm a trooper and I just went through it. And now my friends are telling me that I should tell him that his cock was foul, whereas I think I should just slowly back away and say it was fun, we had a good time, it was a one-night stand, and it's not going to develop into anything more than that, as opposed to saying, hey, your cock stinks, because in my opinion, it could be a chemical thing that he's not necessarily in control of, and we're just not chemically compatible, whereas they, they are saying, well... If he's a nice guy, look out for him. Let him know so that maybe he can do something about it. So what do you think, Dan? There was a really easy way to determine in the moment whether this was a chemical thing or a hygiene thing. And that was when you got your nose down toward his dick and it was stanky. You say, hey, let's jump in the shower. Your crotch stinks. You wash that thing and I'll suck that thing. No guy is going to balk at that. No guy is going to dissolve into a puddle on the floor and cry because some woman who is willing and able to blow him is pushing him to go shower off first. And if he had showered, then you would know. If he showered, freshly showered dick and he brought that back to bed or you were still in the shower and there was still some tang, stank, whatever, then you would know it was a chemical thing that you were just cosmically, chemically mismatched. And so it would never work out. I just can't understand why, when you got down there and it smelled terrible, you did it anyway. That's not being a trooper. A trooper says, hey, let's go to the shower. Let's troop to the fucking shower, dude. and Wash that stick and then I'll suck it. But right now, maybe because we were out dancing, maybe because you've been sitting all day at work, maybe because I don't know what, but your crotch stinks. I think some women will, when they confront stanky dick, empathize in this weird and misplaced way because I know a lot of women are very insecure about their vaginas smelling, right? But the, what the culture throws at women about vaginas being dirty and fishy and smelly and you got to douche that thing, which you do not have to do. Please don't do that. Uh, and so some women, when they're confronted with sneaky male genitals, will assume that that guy is going to perhaps be as insecure as you might be about that kind of comment. That if you said to the dude, your dick stinks, that he would perhaps feel as bad as uh, as you might or some other woman might if somebody said to her, your trot stinks. I guarantee – ladies, I promise you. I swear to God. I promise you no guy is going to feel bad when you tell him that his dick stinks. No guy is going to balk at let's jump in the shower and wash that thing so I can suck that thing. No guy on earth is going to – is going to pull his pants up and leave your house after you've said that to him. So should you say something to him now? Sure. Yes, you should say something to him now. You should say, hey, dude, that night we hooked up. I shouldn't have sucked your dick, but I did. It stank. You got to shower before dates or shower during dates or something and then see what he says. Oh, yeah, my dick always stinks. It's how I like it. <laughs> if he says that, then yeah, you shouldn't have a second date with him or ever see him ever again. If he's embarrassed – uh, maybe, maybe you should have a second date and take a shower with him and suck his dick then and see if indeed it was chemical or a, a hygiene issue. And my money's on hygiene.
So July 12th last month, the New York Times published this story uh, that kind of made my brain explode. It made my brain explode so hard it's been a month before I could begin to bring myself to even talk about it on the podcast. It was called Sex on Campus, She Can Play That Game Too by Kate Taylor. Uh, and it's all about women at the University of Pennsylvania who are having sex, sex with men that they may not be dating, sex with men that they do not intend to marry, sex with men that relieves them of their virginity. It's crazy the sex that women are having on campus. Um, I actually can't even talk about this article on my own. I'm unqualified to discuss this on my own. So joining me by phone, Amanda Marquette. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? I've never said it out loud before. Yeah, yeah, you are actually. That's 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 a tough one for a lot of people. So thank you. You're welcome. She's a feminist blogger and journalist who writes for Slate, RH, Reality Check, and The Daily Beast, amongst other sites. And she is terrific. If you're not following her on Twitter at Armanda Marquette, M A R C O T T E, you should be. Uh, just before we get to talking about this article, I want to say how much I enjoy watching you on Twitter in 140 character bursts beat the living fuck out of anti-choice sexist douchebags every day, Amanda. Thank you so much. So you read this article when it came out, and you, and you reacted to it in real time. I'm, I'm behind the times here. Can you re, can you tell us what the hell it was all about? Yeah, it, it was kind of purporting to be different than the 8 million articles about hookup culture on campus that we've seen before. These sort of hand-wringing articles that wonder if these girls know what they're doing. Um, it, it was trying to pretend like it was more progressive by saying – Perhaps these young women actually want this or are choosing this. But in the end, it was the same kind of titillation slash um, concern trolling, I would say, of college-age women having casual sex on campus that you always get. What's crazy about the article is you, you start – the article begins with the stories of some women, young women who are – uh, making their own choices sexually, who are not being used by guys. They have these sort of uh, you know, friendships with guys, hookup buddies, um, and, and there isn't a lot of space or time in their lives right now for relationships. And what they seem to be doing, what the, what the, what the, the story says is these women are choosing to delay marriage until after college and after their careers are more settled. And the article ends with sort of glorifying profiles of a few women who are bucking this trend, who are who have boyfriends, who want to marry, who are saving themselves for marriage and would like to marry now, would like to enter into early marriages. And nowhere in the article did they mention that nothing correlates more strongly with divorce and failed marriage than early marriage. And yet the choices that those girls are making presented later in the piece are held up as better, saner, wiser, more loving, more humane, life-affirming choices. My my head exploded when I got to the last page. <laughs> you sometimes start to wonder if, like, the New York Times and other sort of magazines pushing this are just importing people from the 1950s who have just not witnessed the past 60 years of progress um, just to come and, like, look at campus and go, oh, my God, it's changed so much. I mean, that's what kind of kills me about this is, like, I, I, this has been true for decades now. Women have been going to college in order to get an education, not to find a husband for decades now. And yet all you see is the sort of surprise, you know, the sort of trying to hold up the exceptions to the rule as if they're like somehow speaking to some more profound tradition, uh, some pro 
they're kind of living up to their parental expectations or something. And it's just so not reality. It isn't. And they present this story by Kate Taylor in the New York Times presents what these women are doing is somehow abusing the college experience when if you reverse the genders here, nobody would even notice. What are they stigmatizing? Yeah, Yeah, it just seems to be stigmatizing female sexuality. Uh, And also I think, you know, and, and I said this on Twitter, I think one of the things that is also about concerning about this is it is meant in no small part, in fact, she explicitly says that it's the sort of thing that parents should worry about. I mean, the point of these articles in no small part is to make parents worry about sending their girls off to college. And if you kind of think about that too long, it's incredibly troubling. Oh, my God. That Now you're making my head brain explode in a brand new way. Does it make any difference to you as as a feminist that this was written by someone named Kate? Uh, no. <laughs> no, in fact, uh, it's it's pretty much standard issue in the sex panic industry to have women be the ones behind the sex panic industry. In no small part because they're trying to sort of get around both both the accusations that it's deliberately titillating and also that it's anti-feminist trolling. That's so American to be deliberately titillating and you can get away with just reams and reams of deliberately titillating copy so long as you wind up at the end praising the virgin, which is what this piece does. <laughs> yeah. We end in the lap of the virgin, the, the girl saving herself for marriage, taking it very slow with her boyfriend who, sorry for my reading, faggot, sounded like to me, just saying, you know, I don't have crystal balls in my pocket, but hello. But we let, we wind up back with virginity in the end as the as the, the sole marker of the decency and worth and value of a, a, a female, her virginity. And if she can value that, then she is a person of value and she should be respected. And these other girls, not so much. Yeah, it's almost like it's a piece written with the Hayes Code from the 1940s in mind. So what's really going on in college campuses uh, in your mind? What, what, what's what's you know, the what's the trend piece that they should be writing, as opposed to this? Or how would you have reframed the the, the stuff in this? Uh, she can play that game two piece in the New York Times to make it not so sexist and not so horrifying. You know, I don't even know if there's necessarily a trend piece to be written because in my mind, a trend piece implies that there is a trend. And that would imply that there's something new or something changing or something relevant, something that counts as the as the new part of news, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's nothing about the fact that people have multiple sexual partners. Some people have multiple sexual partners while in college. There's nothing about that that's new or unusual, you know? And there's certainly nothing about the sort of male-female dynamics on campus that sometimes cause them to decide that it's a little easier just to have friends with benefits, which is what they called it when I was in college, uh, than to to commit yourself to a relationship. There, there's nothing new about all this. Um, I, I'm sort of puzzled. I, I'm not puzzled. I think I know exactly why there's just been a ramping up of concern in the media about this in the past decade or so. Why is that? Uh, which is, which is I, I think that it's because it's come to people's attention that women are outperforming men in co- on the college level. Mm-hmm. Like in 1996 was the first year that women with bachelor's degrees in the country's 
in the country outstripped men a few years ago. Women with graduating with higher with master's degrees uh, started to outnumber men with master's degrees. Um, we are seeing women really kind of take over the college experience and sort of milk it for all it's worth, <laughs> and, so to speak. <laughs> And, um, you know, I think that's like concerning a lot of, of old fashioned conservative people. I think that they are worried that there's some sort of gender reversal going on and it's coming out in the way that it always does when it comes to women, which is in the sort of sexualized anxiety. Uh, Where are the other examples of this? You say there've been more examples of this kind of trend piece that there's a trend for these kinds of trend pieces is the only trend here. It all started in like 2007 when Laura Sessions Step published the first kind of hookup culture panic piece. And there's been one every couple of years in the New York Times or other places like it since then. And it's always, I mean, to the point where the phrase hookup culture, just put it in Google and it's just so, so many pieces, not only because there's a period, periodically a piece about hookup culture, is it hurting girls, et cetera, then there's going to be all these other responses often from feminists saying, come on, people, give it a rest. Now, when it comes to concern trolling, which I'm very familiar with, it, particularly around gay rights issues, usually a concern troll you know, has some really like bizarre point and the ultimate argument is you should stop it. You should stop pushing for gay rights, stop pushing for gay marriage, stop pushing for people who are gay or lesbian uh, to adopt because it might upset this or that or whatever. What's the goal here of the concern troll with, with this piece? What are they trying to get? Parents not to send their daughters to college because, oh, they might have sex with the men's there? I hope not. <laughs> I, You know, I honestly don't know. I think a lot of it is a sort of reaction to the way that colleges don't seem to be caring very much about the fact that they're graduating more women than men. I think mm -hmm. a little of it is um, a pushback against the reproductive rights movement kind of gaining sort of ground, especially when it comes to contraception. I think a lot of it is a response to the fact that in particularly in liberal states, the average age of marriage is beginning to get to be around 30. And those marriages at 30, again, are more likely to be successful than the marriages at 22 that the New York Times is, seems to be encouraging with this piece. Yeah. Well, and I think that's ultimately what their whole, like, the real concern is. There's just a sort of free-floating anxiety that women are having too much sex. Uh -huh. And I don't, and I, I think that the, the ultimate hope is that they can scare, they can bring back the specter of the slut again have particularly upper middle class, middle class, women with privilege be afraid again that somebody is going to call them the S word. One thing that I think contributes to that in my reading of this piece is that no one who is sexually active in this way, it, you know, has a friend with benefits or a hookup buddy uh, allowed the, the author to use their name, that they're all pseudonyms or initials when I don't think if you really spent time on a big state college campus, you couldn't find girls, women, college students who were doing this, who were having hookup buddies instead of boyfriends or long-term commitments, who were willing to put their own name on it. That there was a choice here, it seems to me an active choice to find people who were sort of walking with shame, living in the shame of this. And even that reinforces that attitude. Yeah, I haven't thought about it that way. I, I mean, I, when we get to when we get to virgin, when we get to the virgins at the end, we got names. But when we've got the sluts at the start, no names. 
That is, uh, you know, I hadn't even thought about that, which is kind of strange because, yeah, you're right. It, it shouldn't be that way. And I, I almost feel like that was, it had to have been a deliberate choice because goodness knows when I was 22, it would have been much harder for me to tell a reporter that I'm a virgin <laughs> <laughs> than that I'd had multiple sex partners. And I love your point. Uh, and I saw it when you made it, uh, when the piece first appeared. Um, that this seems wrapped up in the anxiety that women are outperforming men on college campuses, outperforming men, bachelor's degree, higher ed degrees. And yet here comes this massive piece, the argument being basically, oh, women, women are doing college all wrong. <laughs> Never mind what you might have heard yeah. about women outperforming men on college campuses. Women are doing this college thing and marriage thing and sex thing all wrong. You know, I think the ultimate thing that's sort of going on here is that there's a lot of concern that young women these days are creating their priorities as if they were men, which is to say they consider relationships and sex and, and partners important, but they don't consider it more important than having a career, getting an education, you know, living sort of a full life, not making, you know, getting a husband the end all be all of your existence. The article was called Sex on Campus. You can play that game too. You can go read that in the New York Times if you want to know exactly what we've been talking about. Amanda Marquette, feminist blogger and journalist, writes for Slate, RH Reality Check, and The Daily Beast. Follow her on Twitter at Amanda Marquette. Uh, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm just calling because I don't really – I'm not able to have any male friendships because – um, I'm 23 and I'm a reasonably attractive girl and every, every guy I um, am friends with ends up not wanting to just be my friend, which is, you know, whatever it is, what it is. But I'm wondering what my responsibility is as far as not even like getting into male friendships at all or becoming friends with men to begin with, because I like, I meet people and I want to be their friends, but it, or the same thing happens every single time. And I'm, I have one friend right now who is probably my own, is only, is my only male friend at the moment um, because all of them in the past have, you know, ended poorly. Those friendships have ended really badly. And this one right now, he is, he's a really nice guy who's like very excited to be my friend. And he's um, a chef at a restaurant locally. And he, he, I can tell that he has romantic feelings for me. Just he pays a lot of extra attention to me. He, um, I can, I just, you know, I think girls know, and I certainly know. And so I'm wondering, he hasn't made a move yet, but I'm wondering for this situation and in the future, when am I responsible or when do I need to, um, end friendships? I know this seems narcissistic and I don't mean it to, but, at some point, I, I know where this is going, and I'm curious as to what my responsibility is as far as um, preserving goodwill and others before things become awkward or before they make a move, and I have to say I'm not interested. And if I should know I have responsibility not to be friends with men, period, at all that I wouldn't be romantically interested in, kind of a shitty situation to be in. I don't know if you know this because you know the podcast, the column. It's not about me and my sex life, so I'm pretty circumspect. But uh, you know, I feel comfortable enough with all of you listening to share this. I'm gay, 
right? So I am a disinterested third party to hetero mating rituals. It's one of the reasons straight guys and straight girls come to me for advice. And this is something that I have observed more than once, uh, many, many times. It's sort of a, a male-female dynamic. There are straight guys out there who are into a girl, in, into women, attracted to somebody and they will pretend to be a friend and what they're after is pussy. And it may be a long campaign, maybe a long war to get to that pussy, but they will weasel their way in as friend, 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 and then make that pass and freak that girl out who thought he was just a friend, right? And you, I'm sure, caller, believe that this is the case, that this keeps happening to you over and over and over again, and maybe it does. I have also observed, though, women who know that a guy or many guys uh, are only pretending to be their friends, are lavishing more time and attention on them than someone who is only a friend would because that guy is actually interested in more than friendship and they allow that to go on and on and on so long as they are reaping the benefits of that kind of extra attention in whatever form it takes. I'm not saying this is about monetized forms or any sort of – you know, financial exploitation, but 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 you know, extra time and attention and focus, and they know that the guy is giving them all this extra time and attention and focus because he has greater hopes, and they will accept the extra time, attention, and focus, which encourages the greater hopes, and then encourages them, and then encourages them, and inflates them, and leads the guy to believe that yeah, he might have a chance because there's some unspoken things going on, right? And then when he makes the pass. That woman who knowingly encouraged or allowed this thing to go on, didn't establish friend boundaries, didn't limit the interactions, reacts with shock and horror and indignation out of all proportion because it, they really weren't blindsided. They saw it coming. You, caller, talking about your friend, the chef, you see it coming, which leads me to believe that you might be that second category, that girl who – you know, the guy, you're attractive, you're 23, guys are falling all over themselves to get at you and maybe, I don't know what sort of extra time, attention, affection, whatever you might be accepting from this chef. Maybe none. Maybe you're good and just intuitive and smart and you see it coming. You see it happening again. If so, you need to establish some limits and boundaries. You need to perhaps communicate non-verbally and make yourself less available to this guy and if you're allowing this guy to do more for you than a friend might – you need to knock that shit off. You need to not encourage him in his false hopes if indeed they are false. But if you encourage him in his false hopes, then you cannot react with shock and horror and indignation when he makes the inevitable pass, the pass that right now you see coming. Well, he can't make that pass if you make yourself far less available to him than you are now. If your actions communicate he has no chance, you can head that pass off. That doesn't mean you have to scald him or cut him off or be a dick to him. It just means you have to – I don't know. I don't know what he's doing that has led you to believe that A, this friendship is one he hopes to trade up. But if, he's, if you're that latter category, if you're that other woman, stop. You can have friends who are men. You can have – you should be friends with men who are not attracted to you. I know you are 23 and hot. Not everybody is attracted to everybody. Taste is very subjective. You're 23 and hot. Let's say you've got a lithe, hot body. There are guys out there who are only into big girls. Be friends with them and they're not going to come after you. There are guys out there who are only into guys. They make great guy friends for hot 23-year-old girls who don't want their 
guy friends hitting on them. Make friends with some fags and you will not get hit on, I promise. You ask, caller, what, what's your responsibility here? Your responsibility, you know, you can't control other people. You're responsible. You're only responsible for your own actions. And maybe it's all the latter. Maybe it's all guys, dirtbags trying to manipulate you by sidling up to you and pretending to be your friend and then leaping out from behind the sofa and making the pass. And you are entirely blameless. There's nothing about your actions that is encouraging this except you're 23 and gorgeous and these guys keep pulling this shit on you. But if you are – one of those women who sees this coming and in some small way encourages it, you should knock that shit off or not complain about it. But if you're not going to knock that shit off, then you can't complain about it. Hey, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old female and just over a year ago, my boyfriend of two and a half years broke up with me. Before we were together, we were friends for eight years. When he ended our relationship, he told me that he just didn't know who he was anymore and that he needed to find himself and really figure out who he is and can't be in a relationship to do that. However, when he told me this, I knew he was lying and wouldn't really tell me why he needed to end things. I really thought we would end up together, so whatever, it was over, I don't give a shit anymore. But after three months of breaking up with me, he got into a new relationship, which I'm sure you can know that made me feel really great. So I cut off all ties with him, i.e. removing him from Facebook and Skype, because at that point, he had no business to know about me. Then he tried contacting me and asking me why I unfriended him, which, in my opinion, he could just answer that question on his own. Before that relationship, I was in a verbally abusive one, which thankfully I ended. So in giving you the Cliff Notes version of my past two relationships, I cannot put myself out there. I'm on dating sites, but I just don't really feel interested in them, especially after your rant and when women not being able to sleep around in your 345 podcast. And that really just justified my feelings about meeting men and putting myself out there again and kind of my fear of that. So right now, I'm in my fuck you, I'm working on myself route, and I'm having a hard time trusting after being in a verbally abusive relationship, and then being heartbroken by my best friend. I do still want a connection, though, and I do miss being with someone. What should I do? You say you have a hard time trusting after being in a verbally abusive relationship that good for you, you ended, uh, and then having your heart broken by your best friend, but you still want a connection and you miss being with someone. So what should you do? You should wait. Wait another three or four weeks, maybe another three months, and that desire for a connection, that desire to be with someone will begin to outweigh your fear of being hurt again. And then the scales will tip and you will risk – again, you will take risks. You will risk what? You will risk being hurt again. There is no beginning of a new relationship without both parties being willing to risk hurt. That's just a given. You have to make yourself vulnerable to someone. You have to will yourself to trust someone. You have to take a gamble on an unknown quantity, which is another human being, which who is you know ultimately fundamentally unknowable. But you take a risk. You take a chance. And that person, that next person, they're going to hurt you too. It's just whether or not they're going to hurt you in disqualifying ways and relationship ending ways. There is no relationship that will not bring the pain. They all bring the pain. But hopefully what you want is you find somebody who brings more joy than pain and the joy outweighs the pain. You stick around and they stick around and it works out and everybody's happy-ish. Not deliriously happy, not blissfully happy, not pain-free happy. It's a relationship. It's not a morphine drip. You will suffer. But 
It'll be better than being alone. And the suffer of together will be better than the suffer of alone in your case. There are people out there perfectly happy alone, not trying to make them feel shamed or stigmatized. Like I've said, if you're a regular listener and you are, you're citing chapter and verse of previous podcasts. Like I've said before, every relationship you are ever going to be in is going to fail until one doesn't. And you don't know which one that is until you're dead or your partner's dead and then you're like, ah, that was that one that wasn't going to fail. Right? So you had a couple. You're young. You had a couple of shitty relationships fall apart. You were in a shitty abusive relationship and again, good for you dumping the abuser. Good for you. And you were in a relationship with somebody where it was working for you and you thought this might be long-term. You thought it might be it. You thought he might be the one that you could round up from 0.72 to the one and he didn't feel the same way about you. And that sucks but that happens. It happens to everybody and you are going to do that to someone in turn. That person, the abusive relationship, that person you dumped, bet he was hurt. He had it coming. He deserved it. If he was an abuser, if it was an abusive relationship, verbally abusive, glad you dumped him. But I bet he hurt. So what your 2.5-year boyfriend did to you, you've already done to somebody else. You dumped somebody. Somebody dumped you. You're going to have another relationship as soon as your desire to be together and connect outweighs your fear of being hurt. You'll have another relationship. You might get dumped. You might do the dumping. That happens. And then one day you're going to wake up in a relationship where nobody does the dumping. There will still be pain because it is a relationship, not a morphine drip. But that's it. My advice for you, wait. Wait three months. Wait six months and you'll be fine. Everything that's happening to you is normal. Everything you're feeling is normal. I have a sort of an etiquette question. I have a second date scheduled for tomorrow evening with this guy that we'll call him Claude for the sake of keeping things straight. Uh, not really feeling it. Like the first date we went out, we made out. It was fine, but a little bit boring and I wasn't going to see him again. But then when I was like, I'm not, you know, the chemistry isn't there. We don't need to keep doing this. He was like, well, but maybe let's go talk about it. And it's been kind of on the fence. So I was like, sure, fine, let's go talk about it. So we have the second date scheduled. Uh, tonight, I went out with this new guy, and the chemistry was there instantly, like the sexual compatibility, all of the things that I am looking for right now were there. Um, so that's cool. Like, things are great with this new guy, and we already have plans to see each other in a few days. I'm like, that's the kind of fling that I'm looking for. And it sort of confirms that I was right about Claude in the first place, and that's not what I'm looking for, and I'm not willing to settle for like, being halfway bored while we're making out, and I don't want my mind to be monitoring that much. So since I know now that the second date is pointless, should I call it off? Or should I go through with it for the sake of politeness, even though I know that it's there's no point to it? I don't know. What is the appropriate thing to do? I'm against encouraging false hopes. If you know for certain that this guy has no shot, no chance, it is dating under false pretenses. It's allowing someone to live in false hope and you shouldn't do that. You should put him and this out of its misery and you should just send him an email or send him a text, God forbid, or give him a call and say, I just don't feel good about this and you're a really great guy but I don't think that we should date. I don't see us together and so I want, I'm calling this off. Don't leave it open to negotiation. I'd like to call this off which just invites him to argue with you about it and perhaps you to lose that argument. Just call it off. Say, see you around. Lovely guy. 
Uh, I will give you good references. If we ever know anyone in common who's attracted to you, I will talk you up. Um, but I am not going to be going on that second date with you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old straight married man. I have been married for 13 years, never cheated on my wife, never any real desire. Uh, however, uh, lately, our sex life has fallen off the face of the earth. And it's through no fault of hers. She has suffered for the last seven years from a chronic medical condition that makes sex nearly impossible. It forces her jaw closed, and she has it's rheumatoid arthritis, and it's very hard for just about anything sexual to happen. She feels very guilty about this and has actually offered to allow me to satisfy my urges elsewhere. I have always said no, uh, and I meant it, but that was four years ago when she last offered, and I'm really starting to feel uh, feel the dry spot. The problem is she feels very guilty over everything involving this illness. Uh, she can't open a pickle jar. Uh, she tears up. Taking care of our kids is very difficult, and she feels exceptionally guilty whenever I bring up sex. Is it wrong of me, uh, with this permission given in the past, to look for something outside of her knowledge on a business trip or a convention to have a one-night stand and hook up and not tell her, because uh, it's just physical, and she has said past that she would be okay with it. Um, I'm in a moral quandary, and would like to know your opinion. You're in a tough spot. You have all my sympathy. I've often written about just this circumstance. You know, sometimes when I say in my new book, An American Savage, I have a chapter called Cheating is Always Wrong, except when it isn't. And the examples I cite are very similar to yours, where there's a medical condition where th that makes sex between the partners basically impossible and the choice ultimately for the one partner who would still like to be sexually active, who's capable of it, is to get his or her needs met elsewhere or divorce. You know, there's a CNN article I talk about in that chapter that talks about how to save the sexless marriage, how to repair and save your sexless marriage. And hilariously enough, after uh, divorce, divorce is an option to save your marriage somehow. Only after divorce, the option to save your marriage is mentioned. Do they mention ethical non-monogamy? That CNN article was tremendously revealing about the way the culture regards non-monogamy. That non-monogamy is less likely to save your marriage than divorce. Divorce comes higher on the list of things likely to save your marriage. Seems to me that you're in a really difficult position because – it pains your wife. It's emotionally painful for your wife to be reminded of all the things that she cannot do. She tears up when she can't open a pickle jar, um, that she can't be as physically there for her children as she once was. Sounds like she's quite capable of being emotionally there for her children, but physically she can't be everything she would like to be as a parent and that pains her. And to know that she can't be sexually to you everything that she would like to be pains her. So going to her and reminding her of that offer on her part. For you to get your needs met elsewhere, she'll turn a blind eye, that she understands. That will magnify the pain of you getting your needs met elsewhere. For all you know, she may presume right now that you could not have waited all this time. She may presume that this is already going on. And so 
this is a case where there's just a lot of pain here, a lot of emotional pain, a lot of regret. And I don't think going to her and reminding her of that offer and telling her, putting it in her head that you're going to act on it now while perhaps technically, quote unquote, the right thing to do, the honest thing to do, I don't think emotionally is the right thing to do. Do what you need to do to stay married to me and stay sane is basically what your wife said, that she knows that at some point you may need to seek sex, seek release elsewhere and she's already given you that permission slip. It was probably very painful for her to talk about that at the time, painful for her to hand you that permission slip. So to go to her again and say, can you hand me that permission slip a second time? I need you to give it to me again. To my reading seems cruel. You've got her permission already. Do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. Be very discreet. Be very safe. Don't magnify her pain by doing this, getting your needs met in a way that's going to rub her nose in it. Allow her to live perhaps in a state of suspended disbelief, able to convince herself at times that this has never happened. In total, all of that on your part, you going to those lengths, even with cheating, would be kinder to your wife than strictly honest, above-board, full disclosure would be. That will magnify her pain. Do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 31-year-old gay man, and I'm also an aerialist. I teach and perform acrobatic pole dancing, aerial silk, spinning hoop, and other things. Uh, I have a full-time day job in biological sciences, so it's not my full-time thing. Um, but frequently, the performance opportunities for this are in burlesque and variety shows. And I love being in those shows. Burlesque is an amazing art. Anyone of any size, color, and shape can be beautiful on the stage. My problem is that my boyfriend of one year and three months thinks that burlesque is stripping. I've taken him to shows to try to show him the difference. Not that stripping is bad. I know plenty of really awesome people who are strippers. But he just doesn't get it and really doesn't like it. I worry that I might be in a controlling relationship, so I tried to look up warning signs online. The signs for the way he acts didn't match up very well, although there were a couple. Uh, but the signs about how I act toward him matched up really, really closely. I love what I do in performing, and I can't give that up. I worry that if I don't, eventually he won't be able to handle it anymore and will leave. Everything, in our, everything else in our relationship is great except for this. So am I the one somehow making this a controlling relationship since I was the one the signs matched up to? Um, if you could give me some help, I would really appreciate it. Joining me by phone from his boyfriend's apartment, that's highly relevant to this call, gender-blending boylesque sensation, Waxy Moon. Waxy, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, so you've been doing burlesque for a long time and you are amazing. You are one of the nation's premier boylesque performers. Thank you, yes. I've been doing it since the fall of 2006. And you're tremendous. Everybody who hasn't seen Waxy should jump online. You have videos on YouTube. You're in a new film, Waxy Moon, Fallen Jewel, uh, and people should see it. So what would you tell this guy? He's been with this guy for a year and some change, a year and a couple of months, who disapproves of uh, of burlesque, of boylesque. Do you have any advice for this guy? Well, first of all, I really, really appreciate that the caller tried to educate his boyfriend about the difference between burlesque and stripping. Not that there's anything wrong with stripping. Not that there's anything wrong with stripping. I love strippers. I have a lot of great friends who are strippers. But um, but there are a lot of differences, right? The, the venues are different. Uh, burlesque shows are about entertainment and theatrical stripping and costuming and humor and performance skills. And, you know, strip clubs are very much about sexual gratification and the possibility of 
that gratification and the exchange of money for that. And just because flesh is on display in both places doesn't make them samey-samey. You can go to the ballet, you can go to a modern dance show and see as much flesh as you might see uh, in a burlesque show or at a strip club. So it's not yes, that the flesh thing makes it stripping. Right, right. And, um, uh, you know, and, and generally there's a little less nudity um, – uh, or there's no nudity at a burlesque show, right? People will strip down to pasties and a G-string or something like that. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that the boyfriend has been to these shows and he's still really challenged by it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my thought is that it's an opportunity for a conversation. You know, ask him what it is that he's challenged by and um, kind of educate him about the, the form and, and kind of in, bring him to more shows and introduce him to performers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I forget that it, it's a challenging art form for people. Um, and, it, you know, it's still considered uh, tawdry. How long have you and your boyfriend been together? Six months. Okay, so you started dating this guy well after you were doing Boyless. Did he have any issues yeah. with it? Uh No. <laughs> Not at all. And, you know, frankly, if he did, if he had, you know, I wouldn't have even gone on a second date if he had, you know, someone who was in support of my, of my creative life and my passion for this art form and for performance, you know, if they're not supportive of it, I, I wouldn't continue it. So, um, wait, okay, wait, Waxy, wait just one second there. How come that's not your advice for this guy? How come we're not a dumb motherfucker <laughs> already? Well, I don't know. You know, I think sometimes partners of people who are involved in creative endeavors might feel challenged or threatened by the fact that there's, you know, that they, they're invested in something that, that takes a lot of time and dedication and focus. So, you know, maybe it's just a matter of saying to him, you know, I really love you and I love this art form and there aren't limits to my love. And I would add, I love you. I love this art form, but you know what? The one that doesn't force me to choose, I'm going to love more. And yeah. so if you force yeah. me to choose, I'm choosing burlesque over you. Because oh, burlesque isn't forcing I mean, me to choose. Yes. Yeah, the caller, I mean, the caller would totally resent it if his boyfriend, you know. Um, you know, being with his boyfriend means giving up something he's passionate about. But, but his boyfriend know. is that's, kind that's of forcing okay. him. His boyfriend is right now kind of forcing him to choose by constantly being a dick about the burlesque because yep. it's a way of yeah. of punishing him for doing it. And the boy, he's hoping, the boyfriend, that eventually the burlesque dancer will get sick of the punishment and decide that the performance isn't worth the grief and give it up. And so even if he right. doesn't say you have to choose, he's kind of forcing the choice. But it's a – it's a campaign. It's yeah. a long war. And I certainly don't think he should stop. I do not think the boyfriend should stop. You know, clearly it's his passion. But I just, my hope is that the boyfriend will come around. Maybe he'll be more comfortable with it over time. If he's more educated about it, he sees more. Maybe he meets burlesque performers. You know, he'll feel less threatened by it. You know, the call actually reminded me of when I first met Terry, my husband, because at that time, I was still doing drag. And Terry, at that time, was one of those gay guys who said I would never date a drag queen. And oh, then no. we met, and he was kind of into me. And so he was like, well, I guess I'm dating a drag queen. And he, he, I didn't require him to be thrilled about it. you know. And it became yeah. shtick. It became kind of a joke in our relationship early on that he was like, oh, my God, drag. And I was like, yep, drag. And we could both wear that lightly. And so to the caller, I would say if – you know, he doesn't have to love burlesque the way you do. 
And you could even allow for him to be a little like squicked out by it so long as that's worn lightly. It's sort of a joke in your relationship as opposed to some war or conflict or battle in your relationship. You know, yes, yes. Some difference is good. I don't like opera. But if my boyfriend were really passionate about opera, I'd be like, well, now's my chance to learn a little bit about opera. You know, exactly. and I certainly wouldn't punish my boyfriend for liking opera. <laughs> so, to the, so to the caller, I think Waxy and I are on the same page. To the caller, we would say, if he's punishing you, dump him. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Waxy Moon, gender blending boy less sensation. Thank you so much for joining us on the phone and helping me out today. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. Be well. And by the way, you were hilarious on um, Bill Maher. Oh, thank you, you so much. You look so handsome in your pink shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Be well. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is not necessarily a question, but a response to there was a girl that really wanted her boyfriend to come inside her without the prospect of babies, which we're all terrified of. And you left out a huge, huge solution for them, which is the guy getting a vasectomy. That is the solution to me. It's not, you know, coming in her ass or armpits or nostrils. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about episode 353 in response to the young guy whose fiance wanted him to um, ejaculate inside her without a condom, without using any sort of hormonal birth control, like the pill or an IUD. And one thing you didn't mention was that they can totally go out and get her fitted for a diaphragm. A lot of people don't use them anymore because there are so many other convenient methods of birth control, but I've used them in the past. They work great. And once they're inside, you can't even feel them. So that's a suggestion for them so that they can get all their jollies without the uh, risk of pregnancy. Hi, Dan. I recommend the book Taking Charge of Your Fertility by Tony Weschler. That's Tony with an I, and she's a master of public health who has been working in fertility for 30 years. This book is absolutely amazing, and every woman who wants control of her fertility should read it. This book is good for people who want non-hormonal birth control, and also this book is great for people struggling with fertility. It outlines a method called FAM, the Fertility Awareness Method. This is not, I repeat, not the much maligned rhythm method. This method won't work for every woman, but the book will help you figure out if it's right for you. This method does have a high bar to clear. It's more involved than taking a pill every day, so it's not for lazy people. But if you actually follow the instructions, it's very reliable. I hate hormonal birth control because it makes me crazy, and this method worked perfectly for us for six years. And when we decided to have a baby, we got pregnant right away. Thanks. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Hey, Magnum Savage Lovecast listeners, you can help us turn more micro Savage Lovecast listeners into Magnum subscribers by going to iTunes and reviewing the Magnum show where the micro listeners can see it. We would really appreciate it. And again, as always, we really do appreciate all the Magnum subscribers to the podcast. You're getting the tech savvy at risk youth off the streets. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.